Much of the focus right now in healthcare is rightly on overcoming the near-term challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. But beyond the current crisis, healthcare technology veterans are already seeing major changes that promise to become permanent realities. Everything from the sudden boom in telemedicine to fundamental regulatory shifts to the use of location data to track the disease. I don't think people are going to be satisfied with going back to the status quo because these other things are now working. I think these regulatory changes represent a big shift in how healthcare will be delivered beyond 2020. And we really need all this innovation and technology to pull this together in such a fundamental way to solve some of the big challenges we're having. Those are three health technology entrepreneurs. Ann Weiler, the co-founder and former CEO of WellPepper, Nirav Shah, CEO of Sentinel Healthcare, and Doug Cusick, CEO of Transformative Med. We brought them together for this episode of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast for a conversation about their perspectives on the COVID-19 crisis. And the discussion quickly turned to the long-term implications for hospitals, clinicians, startups, patients, and the healthcare system writ large. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. Coming up, COVID-19 and the future of health technology. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is sponsored by Primera Blue Cross, providing comprehensive health benefits and tailored services to approximately 2 million people, from individuals to Fortune 100 companies. Learn more about how Primera is innovating in healthcare at primera.com slash innovation. Hi, I'm Ann Weiler. I'm the co-founder of WellPepper, which is a platform for interactive care plans, helps people manage their health outside the clinic. I'm the former CEO. Um, WellPepper has now become part of Caravan Health, which is the largest ACO convener in the country, and happy to be here. Remind me what ACO stands for. Accountable Care Organization. Right. So keeping track of outcomes and costs. Yeah, they help hospitals become an ACO and do a lot of the process and the the risk sharing really on the costs. I'm Nirav Shah, founder of Sentinel Healthcare. I'm a stroke neurologist by training. I started Sentinel to monitor managed patients at risk of diseases like heart attack and stroke. Hi everyone, I'm Doug Cusick. I'm the CEO of Transformative Med. We were actually a spin out of the University of Washington and CoMotion back in about 2012. And we kind of sit right between the intersection of clinical workflows and uh, technology and making the electronic health record much more usable for our clinicians who typically struggle with getting data organized when they need it, the right types of data, when they really need to make decisions in the care process, and then seamlessly communicate and collaborate with the greater team in the healthcare ecosystem. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring the three of you together is that you each have different viewpoints into hospitals and healthcare based on your experiences and companies that you've founded. I'd be very curious to hear, to start, what your general observations are, what you're watching as this pandemic plays out and as it starts to reach a crisis in U.S. hospitals. From the perspective of technology entrepreneurs, what are you watching and, and what are you thinking as this happens? Generally speaking, as our scientists and clinicians have expected, the cases are dramatically rising you know, as more widespread testing occurs and is available. Uh, and we're seeing higher than positive percentages compared to overall influenza, whether we're in the U.S. or certainly with some of the numbers we're seeing in other countries. 
And I think that, uh, you know, we're beginning to understand that as much as our frontline clinicians are dedicated to giving good care, there have been some significant challenges in how patients in particular are moving through the healthcare systems. And in many cases, what we're noticing is that it's quite chaotic. So anything we can do to help them kind of organize patients and how they enter the system and how they're treated and tested and providing follow-on care, depending on whether they're in an ambulatory environment or in the hospital or somewhere in between, has become critical in understanding and weaving that back into kind of the knowledge that's now available so that we are prepared even more so for the next time this happens. And what have you observed? You're not day-to-day at a healthcare tech company anymore, but what have you been your observations on this pandemic as it's happened? Yeah, I'm not day-to-day, which is giving me a, a lot of time, maybe too much time. The first thing that you can't help noticing is the sacrifices that the healthcare workers are making, the frontline ones, the doctors, the nurses, the you know, the cleaning staff, just all of the people in the hospital do not have the protective gear that they need anywhere. I think that and the the lack of testing are the sort of two things that you, and ventilators are the things that you just see as the huge issues that we have got to solve. And I think that opened my eyes a little bit to things like sl- supply chain that I hadn't really thought of as part of this. But one of the things that I've seen that is very interesting is just how quickly regulations that we have been trying and trying and trying to change for years are suddenly changed. The interstate licensing for MDs, that was always a barrier to telemedicine. So if you, I know you've talked to, well, I've been on a, a podcast with, with Robbie Cape from 98.6. And one of the first things they did was get doctors licensed in every state so that if somebody came in and was using their tool and they were in a different state, they could provide care. Well, that has been lifted. I don't see us going back. I always question, you know, why would a doctor be able to practice in Washington and then suddenly in Oregon, they've forgotten how to be a doctor. So that's one thing. Um, Telemedicine. The American Telemedicine Society has been around for something like 22 years. And every year it's been, is this the year of telemedicine? Well, this is the year of telemedicine. We've actually figured out like, oh, it works for so many situations. And again, there was a billing code issue. I just saw that the physical therapists are now able to have billing codes for telemedicine. And that's been a barrier for them forever. And you think about like physical therapy, there's a lot you can do with a video camera. Yeah, you can't necessarily adjust somebody, but with someone who's recovering from knee surgery, should they have to be going into a clinic? So I think that it's opened up a lot of things that people thought were difficult. And the other thing I'm seeing in that is doctors saying, I follow you know, a ton of doctors on, on Twitter saying, oh, I didn't think you could do telemedicine. And it turns out you can. Most interesting is going to be what happens when this is over. I don't think people are going to be satisfied with going back to the status quo because these other things are now working. Nirav, one thing that struck me when we talked for a recent story about Sentinel was that you, through your fever tracker, are specifically thinking about healthcare workers as the end users, the people who would be the the ones who are having their fevers monitored through your remote application. What have you seen, even just over the last couple of weeks, through your lens into hospitals uh, in that way? It's been really, really interesting. We launched Fever Tracker, I think, right uh, when we last talked a couple of weeks ago. 
we have a couple thousand users already logging data on a daily basis across kind of the world um, because we made it open. We had to work, as I mentioned, sort of with the Apple team, the Google team to sort of get it, get it to be listed as a COVID product. And then so far where, where we've been focused has been places that haven't been affected yet. And so it's just part of the workflow that they'll use in terms of healthcare worker exposure. Um, and so we think it's, it'll be coming in some of the systems that, that we're live in and going live in over the next few weeks. And so it'll be interesting to, to be able to kind of support people. Um, and, and I think, as we all know, it's, it's hard to get, do everything with just one app, right? So it's just this big work in progress to try and kind of catch up. But then I think the thing that surprised us is just how little process systems have had and how um, some systems are willing to adopt technology in a time of crisis and others are going to stick to their kind of regular pen, paper, spreadsheet, you know, form-based processes. And so kind of interesting to see how, how the world sh- has just shifted in, in these places. Everyone on this call probably has seen the models that I've seen, but I worry that this will come back and then it'll just be part of the way we have to figure out how to live. And there will be a whole set of sort of utilitarian, ethical, societal questions we'll have to address that we're seeing play out in different countries. Absolutely. I think even from a cultural perspective, seeing things that we've never seen before, I often reference the Italians who have such a close proximity in, in their lack of personal space and what they're now having to learn, right, and adapt and adopt into their own culture. And, and uh, I can see those things having such a dramatic effect on society, right, and learning how to adapt, because this isn't going to be the last pandemic that we face, right, in, in, in certainly humanity, maybe not in our lifetime, but all of the practices and processes that we're learning today will certainly make us much more nimble and the system much more viable into getting this managed much more effectively and quickly than we have for this one. And I was struck by what you said earlier about the changes that have happened already in policy, like state borders for doctors. I'm wondering how much of the challenge that hospitals face right now is about policy versus practice versus technology versus law? What is what is the biggest challenge that's out there right now? And, and how much does technology play a role in it? For- the answer to that is yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. all of those things. I think that the worrisome thing about technology right now is the data, you know, we do not have easy, interoperable and free data. So you think of the all of the data that is going into the EMR, when and where will that ever get extracted for the public health folks to learn from it? You know, I think about my interactions over the last two weeks that were happening through Epic MyChart with me sending an email to my doctor. So like a bunch of emails back and forth and then two telehealth health visits. There's really useful data in there. I don't know that anyone will ever do something with it. That's a blocker in the short term because public health folks need that data to work with. Hospitals need that data to see trends going on in the hospital. So there's no question that technology is currently a barrier. I haven't yet seen the thing. I've seen the, you know, patients remote care. That's, you know, people get it now. Telemedicine, people get it now. I don't know about interoperability. I'm hoping that 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 will shake out of this too. Doug, did you and Ann coordinate that beforehand? <laughs> it's like an alley-oop in basketball. Here, go ahead. Take it away, Doug. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, uh, I've i been on the EHR, EMR side of the business, I guess, for about 30 plus years. And as much 
as I'd like to say, there's been a lot of change. There actually hasn't been. I mean, the EHRs have solved problems, but they've created a tremendous amount of problems that we're facing today, interoperability being one of them, but even physician burnout, right? Physicians are, their number one frustration is dealing with the electronic health record. And I'm sorry, we need those frontline clinicians if we're ever going to face this pandemic and anything in the future. For as much innovation that's actually going on in the industry, from smart on fire to analytics to pop health to AI to machine learning, you name it, it's happening in our industry. The challenge is how you take all that great technology and you get it into standard practice and into the clinical workflows that doctors and nurses, that's where all the action happens. That's where they gather data in order to make decisions. And the EHRs have made it more around a hunting and pecking session, right? I'm going to have to log in. I'm going to have to spend countless hours getting data in order to make decisions, right? That's impractical. So I think the more interoperability, and this is all about policy and standards, right? And this is what we're now starting to see. The more that the EHR vendors allow this, one is very much for it, the other isn't, and I won't know names. But I think as these standards start to take effect, that companies like ours can truly embed applications that make the EHR usable. And by example, if you're an endocrinologist or an oncologist or a hospitalist, Based on your specialty, you require certain data elements at a certain given point in the decision-making process in a certain format with the right level of decision support to make decisions. And if I have to spend so much time hunting for that data, I'm probably not potentially going to make the best decisions possible. So organizing that data appropriately as part of their workflow is what I call the personalization of the electronic health record. And I think this is where we're gearing towards, where the HRs, I think, and maybe Ann would agree, they're just a foundation. Really, this is just the basis of how we make it work. And we really need all this innovation and technology to pull this together in such a fundamental way to solve some of the big challenges we're having. And that, I'll get off my pedestal now. <laughs> so what will COVID-19 mean for data portability and privacy? That's coming up next. This season of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast is presented by Primera Blue Cross. At Primera, we talk about what we do all day. We offer access to healthcare. The card in the pocket allows people to go get access to healthcare. Dr. John Espinola is Executive Vice President of Healthcare Services for Primera Blue Cross. The challenge we have is that we know that the healthcare that they get access to doesn't work as well as it could. So we have a duty at Primera to make healthcare work better. That's our job. We give people access to healthcare, yet we give them access to something that's subpar. We have a moral and fiduciary obligation to do better. We're going to do it in partnership with those who may touch the moment of care. Providers, innovators, entrepreneurs, all of these are going to help us move in the direction we need to to make healthcare work better. We're bold enough to take the risk to try to do something that'll make a difference and learn from it and be better along the way. To find out more, visit Primera.com innovation. Welcome back to GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. Let's jump back into our conversation with Ann Weiler, the co-founder and former CEO of Wellpepper, Doug Cusick, CEO of Transformative Med, and Nirav Shah, CEO of Sentinel Healthcare. Nirav, you've been getting a window into this world over the past few weeks and, and obviously longer. What could technology do in the short run to 
help manage what we're dealing with, with COVID-19 as a society and as a healthcare system? Are there things that if you could build it and snap your fingers and roll it out today, you'd want to, to do? Yeah, no, I mean, certainly. You know, our company's bet on sort of remote care from the beginning. And, and in specific terms, we're solving problems that I felt in my clinic that it was hard to manage patients outside the walls of the systems of care. And, and our starting point was around people who had already accessed care, who were already on meds. And to me, that was sort of the, the shocking sort of thing that I couldn't get on top of their, their care plans. And I, for us, at least COVID has sort of flipped that. Because I think there's going to be a new interesting way to think about how to manage people as they walk in the door. And in specific terms, I think as Doug was mentioning, it's so challenging work with the EHR. It's almost like, you know, we, we need to figure out how to build a world together that just works independent of EHRs and sort of a new operating system, if you will. And I think, I think there's an opportunity to do that. I think as, as Anne was saying, I think these regulatory changes represent a big shift in how healthcare will be delivered beyond 2020. I don't think we're going to go back. Like telehealth is now reimbursed broadly. And there was a long time for which it wasn't going to be reimbursed. As a stroke neurologist, I covered 15 hospitals from Seattle all the way up to Alaska. And we only did it because it was a way to get acute stroke patients in and doing procedures for these patients in fee-for-service systems like in Seattle and most of the country meant a lot of dollars. And so stroke neurologists have been using video-based telecare for a long time. And, and in business terms, it was, it was basically lead gen for the procedure, for the surgeon to do their thing. And so it's been complicated to think about how to address this and how Medicare and the world will think about this because it solves access, but didn't really change the quality and the, you know, the characteristics of outcomes, at least to anyone's understanding. And I think now we get to sort of move that together. Um, and so, so I think it would be a really exciting time to catalyze how healthcare changes. And in specific terms, to answer your question about COVID, I think that, uh, you know, it just forces us to think about how to not touch people, right? And so I think in, in our case, some of the things that we have built in our building and would like to build will be ways to do contactless screening. Uh, we have a workflow around that that's already gone live. And so it, it's just really great to kind of be forced to innovate in a space and not allow caregivers to touch um, their patients. And, and I think that'll kind of extend itself throughout a bunch of workflows, as Doug can imagine, probably through his work and, and ours too. And then I think to Anne's point, I think the concern that even I had when I walk around Seattle sometimes on a run, I'll see kids playing basketball or soccer in a field even, even in the past week. And it's a little bit shocking to see that. So I think the opportunity for, for app and cloud-based technology is that you could potentially have what I would jokingly, but but in real terms, call like a population therapeutic. I mean, how cool would it be if you could have an app on your phone that told you where the nearest case counts were and that it could give you a sense of why you should specifically adhere to self-isolation measures? I think the reason why people don't do it is because it seems like the world is the same, even though it's not. And that's the challenge with these insidious processes like viruses or or these other types of things. It's very hard to feel and quantify, especially you know, for the youngest people who, who basically don't die from it, right? In, in general terms, and so, so you know, if you're if your kids or teenagers, I think in some places college college students are partying more, even though they were sent home. You know, it's just the disease doesn't affect you; doesn't feel real, and and the demographics also suggested it's not real for you, and yet you're going to probably spread it because of your activities in crowded settings. In terms of data and the ability to pool it and get insights from it, you've got a few different things going on. You've got HIPAA, you've got, as you said, Doug, the constraints put in by 
one unnamed uh, EHR or EMR provider. But then you've also got privacy concerns of individual patients. And you were referencing earlier the things that might change long-term coming out of this. Could society's concern about personal privacy change and become more relaxed in the interest of the public good and getting some of these insights that you're talking about that might help to identify, prevent, or control pandemics such as this? Will privacy change because of this? We've been wondering about this because our app allows for GPS via consent and authorization because of this exact reason. I mean, we would love to sort of give local public health departments or states and national the ability to know who's adhering to self-isolation measures. And you could envision a world where, you know, if people in a certain part of the city aren't adhering that something between strong suggestion and, and law, there's, there's a lot of room to sort of guide people and maybe have sort of the sheriffs or police enforcement kind of go around and just try and encourage people to stay where they are and kind of be more aggressive and help um, entities understand where to stay safe. I mean, we're, we're thinking about other strategies. For example, there are a lot of people who just will have to work, right? Drivers for Uber, Lyft, USPS workers, waste management. And so we're thinking through whether we would want to be able to sort of support um, these people because they're going to be exposing themselves to the line of the work that they have to do to keep their job and keep society functioning. And so that would, you know, there, I think there's a whole set of questions around sh- uh, opening privacy and getting getting public health data, you know, and getting a better public health outcome. You know, if you look at the requirements for HIPAA, they're they're not that crazy. In fact, if you're going to build enterprise software, you're going to have those levels of protection. I think what may change is the using HIPAA as a way of not sharing data um, because patients want to share data. Um, patients want to communicate with their care teams. You know, they've, they've now said, okay, you don't have to have a HIPAA compliant telemedicine solution. You know, that when you see some of the conferencing solutions getting hacked, I think you do want good levels of privacy and encryption there. But remember HIPAA was about portability the P is portability, you do want the data to be able to go from place to place. And if something comes out of it with respect to privacy, I hope it's more about the ability to to share the data. I still want us to be able to protect the data. And if I want to contribute my data to a larger pool to help people, that's great. I am still very concerned about how, you know, you don't need too many pieces of information to be able to reverse engineer who someone is. Um, you know, and Google in particular is good at that. So the privacy piece still needs to be there. But I think that the issue is in the right hands and using it for the right purposes and unlocking the important information. I would love for someone to have these symptoms that I just wrote to my doctor somewhere. But, you know, I don't know that they're going to get anywhere. So I went on the COVID near you site and told them my symptoms, <laughs> which I would advise everyone else to do as well because they're doing they're that's a good group and they're doing a good job of, and also reacting to as new you know new symptoms come out. In the hypothetical world where a venture capitalist came to any of you and said, or an angel investor and said, "Hey, I really want to solve a problem that's been identified and reached the public consciousness because of this coronavirus crisis." Here is what should we say, fifty million dollars. $50 million. I used to say $1 million now. It's inflation and all that. What problem would you solve 
Do you have any specific ideas to the extent that you don't mind them being stolen by our savvy listeners? Well, fifty million is great, right? I'd love to. I'd love to get that <laughs> in my back pocket today to make a couple big bets. But I would say before. I personally would answer that question. I would say technology serves an incredible purpose, but I think sometimes what technologists who are sitting outside of the industry believe is that technology will be the change agent, right? And instead, what they realize when they dive into the healthcare industry is that, hey, some of the greatest technologies known to man have never seen the light of day in the industry. And some of the worst technologies are mainstay. So it's really not about the technology. It's about having the technologist with the deeply embedded healthcare professional, and I'm a clinician by background as well, and I know Nurav is, who understand where they intersect. Because I, I can't tell a doctor what to do, right? The doctor's going to say, why am I listening to you, right? I went to school to practice medicine. I care about my patient." So fundamentally, we have to make sure that technology and, and the practice of medicine meet, right, to solve some of these huge problems that are in healthcare today. And that's why we're seeing so much innovation. But for me, selfishly, it's realizing that our health systems don't communicate and collaborate in the, in the way that they actually should. And not just around data, right, but just in the life of the day of and too often, even as administrators in health systems, we get removed from the front line because we're hearing the poor, noisy physician who's saying, if you give me this widget, right, my whole life is better. But the CIO doesn't often get to the front line to understand, well, why is the physician complaining and is there a bigger problem? So I think the more we look to technology to solve problems, but don't forget about these poor clinicians who've been left out in the process around technology. And, and that's been the challenge is that people are forgetting about it. it's the nurses and the doctors who are the recipients of this, and yet it's causing even more frustration. So the, the view has to be into solving these big communication and collaboration problems, which will enable so much else to work across our ecosystem. For, for me, the thing that's been, you know, really fascinating to think about that Anne just mentioned is this idea that uh, we don't know what we don't know. And so, for example, with COVID, there are these reports that one to three percent of people have conjunctivitis or, or red eyes, basically inflamed red eyes. Yet, yet that can't be correct. It's probably way more because how many people are actually checking? Who's doing the right systematic study? Um, it, it's If there's any number of people having it, it's probably more than one out of 100. Um, in general, on a, any given day, it's probably more than one out of 100 people. And so I think the thing that I'd be most excited about is, is thinking about the way the world moves and how physiology and symptoms of disease get, happens in real time. And, and people are starting to work on different categories of this. You know, Apple's starting to do big studies with their watch and the app. And Evidation has this platform that enables sort of patient-reported outcome-based data. And it's going to be, I guess, the biggest study, virtual study of its kind. But, but I think in general, this notion that we live and die by the randomized controlled trial in healthcare is really challenging beyond all the stuff that Doug said, which I resonate with. But I think that to me would be the thing that we think about is how can we make inferential analysis and kind of move the needle like in real time. And that's hard, right? Because, you know, in the, in the case of blood pressure, which is where we started, it was so obvious that it was such a big problem that there was almost no debate. All the work had been done. And there are plenty of spaces that we just haven't even had the data to even think about it. So... That'd be what I'd work on, physiology, trials, and you know, getting that data from real people in real time. And for you, this may not be a hypothetical. I mean, you're a free agent after the acquisition <laughs> of Wallpepper. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think what Nirav mentioned about analyzing the data, I think it, it's extremely interesting to, rather than do a randomized control trial, get a good data set and find the clusters in it and see what that's telling you. But that's without any sort of hypothesis. Like, so if I just had, you know, if I had the $50 million and had enough time to to assure you I'm going to come up with an idea after we get those insights, that's one path. Um, I think the other is that within healthcare, looking at what works at the edges or the extreme. So Nirav mentioned the telestroke that was necessary because of rural hospitals not having neurologists. I think anything that can work in distance and rural and aging population and combine that with people. You know, having built now a technology company in healthcare, I am a huge proponent of you've got to have people and those people can be empowered and enabled and made more efficient by technology. But if you're offering something to the health system, you've got to be taking something off the table. So if that's doing first line care for them by having doctors or if that's doing billing for them, whatever it is, it's it, it would be a tech enabled services business unless it was like, well, the first one would be figure out something so that you can figure out where to put the effort and the, the funding for a tech enabled service business, but it would be tech enabled service. Um, and I am really interested in the, the place senior stuff because I think this is a great example of like, you know, if, if we had better tools for them, I think a lot of the seniors are the ones who are kind of frustrated about uh, not having staying home and they're trying to go out, but because we don't have good tools for them. I mean, it's so hard. I mean, as easy as all these things are, you know, they're still not easy enough. Hey, Todd, if I could just add one thing Please. Yeah, that uh, I'm always reminded uh, from the C-suite in these major health systems is like, Doug, it has to bring immediate ROI to our organization, right? Because we have so many technologies and so many applications to choose from. The doc's got to love it and be able to use it, right? It needs to create efficiencies in their day. They need to be able to deliver better care, right? And you need not to disrupt IT, right? And that's a challenge because software is great, but not if it, it just becomes one of so many projects that IT is managing. So the easier we can make it for the CIOs and their teams to, to get things done and for us as as, as, as third-party vendors, or as I call innovation partners, to take the heavy lift, the burden of the heavy lift, right? Uh, the, the better off for these health systems. And I'll tell you, these health systems are really gonna be challenged in the coming year, right? If you think about all the elective surgeries that have been canceled, it goes right to their bottom line. So this is even gonna be more pertinent to make sure that we're delivering value from day one when we're working with the, the healthcare ecosystems. All right. Well, we're just going to split the fifty million among the three of you. Does that work? <laughs> uh, so, nah, give give Anne a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's on mute. You can't see everybody's laughing. Uh, what should people know that we haven't talked about yet? What would you want folks to know? I would say if you're on social media, follow the doctors and nurses who are on the front line because they'll tell you what's happening. Also, follow the people who used to work at the CDC and the epidemiologists. There's, just, there's a lot of information out there and there's some really good sources and it's really hard. Like I'm, I'm hearing from so many people that they just, they don't know where to go for the information. And it's in this world where we think that everything is real time. 
I'm amazed to see people um, just finding out about things much later or also even seeing, you know, as, as I have friends on Facebook who are in different places, like people posting memes that were in Seattle two weeks ago. And it's like, yeah, that, yeah, we're past that. Um, so I think it can be overwhelming, but it's amazing actually the number of um, healthcare workers who are posting on Twitter because they want people to know what's going on. Um, and, you know, echoing Doug, stay home. And also we need protective gear for these, these hospitals. I think the, the thing that I, I'm hearing from sort of the frontline workers along the West Coast and in big, big centers that, that are relatively advanced, if not some of the most advanced in the country, is, is that even our tools that, that they have with diagnostics, they're finding that there might be errors in sort of the, the swabs um, they're using and that, you know, people are moving so fast in this crisis that there's a high risk of just medical error. Um, and so a hospital that I, I'm familiar with just found out that all their diagnostic swabs, they were, they were using the wrong types of reagents to get the testing done. And so all that work in this crisis just kind of went away. And, and it's, it's just goes to show how nuanced the system is and how, how, you know, for those of us who practice or kind of work in it, we, we, we think that, you know, it's straightforward because we just experience it. And then as technologists, we want to move fast and kind of break things right as the adage goes. But, but, but we're going to find that that's, you know, there are going to be some heroic things that come out of this, like ventilators being made from 3D printing devices and PPE that's antiviral, which which most of the world doesn't realize is different than antibacterial still. Um, and I think we'll find that, you know, we are going to struggle too. I mean, it's going to get harder and harder to manage the complexity around this. Well, Anne, Doug, and Nirav, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. It was wonderful. And Nirav, wonderful to meet you as well. Yeah, likewise. Let's let's meet live at some point. I'd love yeah, that. That'd be great. That is Ann Weiler, the co-founder and former CEO of Wellpepper, Doug Cusick, CEO of Transformative Med, and Nirav Shah, CEO of Sentinel Healthcare. Find more information and links in the show notes on this episode and at geekwire.com slash healthtech including some of Ann Weiler's recommended Twitter accounts to follow and our recent coverage of COVID-19 initiatives from Sentinel Healthcare and Transformative Med. Thanks for listening to the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast. See more episodes at geekwire.com slash healthtech and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Follow our ongoing coverage of coronavirus and its impact on Seattle and the tech industry at geekwire.com and look for our live updates for the latest news. Thanks to our sponsor of Health Tech Season 4, Primera Blue Cross. You can find out more about their work at primera.com slash innovation. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. Check back soon for another episode of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast.